All right, wanted to begin this morning by giving you guys an update before we jump into the book of Genesis. As we've mentioned a couple times in the last few months, uh, the elders and, and staff here at Grace Bible Church, we, we believe strongly that God is calling us to multiply again. He's calling us to launch multiple additional campuses because Southwood and Anderson are totally full during the fall. They're totally full and there are still tens of thousands of people in this community that don't know Jesus Christ and aren't plugged into a church where they are growing. So, so we must grow. We must multiply so we can reach more people with the love of Jesus Christ. So we have multiple campuses in our future. We've been working really hard on the third campus. So what do we need to do to launch the third campus? The Lord has led the elders to a few decisions. I'm really excited about the first one. Teaching pastor for the third campus is going to be my best friend and roommate in college, Matt Morton, our communications pastor. He's preached here a number of times. So Matt's going to lead his teaching pastor over at the third campus. We need to hire a bunch more staff, so we're going to be working on that in the coming months. We're also working on a location and timing, and we'll let you guys know when we know more. But we would covet your prayers. If you guys would pray for the elders and the leadership of this church that God would lead and direct us to his plan to what he desires for our church and that he would bring everything together, the right people, the right place, all the money that's needed, everything that's needed for us to be able to fulfill his plan of reaching Bryan College Station with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So exciting things afoot here at Grace Bible Church. This morning we're going to be looking in Genesis again. We're back in Genesis and you can turn to Genesis 25. Genesis 25, we'll look at both chapter 25 and chapter 27. This morning we're going to talk a lot about a question that I have gotten more than any other question while I've been a pastor here at Grace. I've been here 10 years now. And there's one question I'm asked more often than any other by far, by a wide margin. How do we reconcile the sovereignty of God with human free will? How do we put those two together? I'm asked that more than any other by far. So this morning we're going to talk about that. How do we reconcile Divine sovereignty with human free will. Divine sovereignty. That's the, the belief that God's choices determine our destiny. So God in eternity past crafted a plan for your life, a plan that will not fail, a sovereign plan that includes his election of certain individuals for salvation rather than other individuals. How do we reconcile the sovereignty of God, that's the first proposition, with the second, human free will? Human free will is the belief that our choices determine our destiny, that human beings have free will, the the ability to make real choices that carry real consequences in shaping our future, especially that most important choice we make, whether to believe in Jesus or not. So how do you put those two together? Uh, They seem, on the surface at least, to be contradictory. Either God controls your future or you control your future. But you can't have both, right? You can't logically reconcile the two. You can't fit them together easily. And so most theologians in the history of the church have chosen one of these to emphasize over the other. So you pick one and, and drop the other. So for most Calvinists, they're going to pick the top one. 
Calvinists choose the sovereignty of God. They emphasize that. They diminish human free will. So to a Calvinist or most Calvinists, God has preordained your future such that when you make choices, you're really not making free real choices. You are simply acting out the plan that God preordained for you in eternity past. That's, that's the Calvinist solution. Arminians solve it the opposite way. They grab hold of human free will and diminish divine sovereignty. So God has a plan for you that is open-ended. It's not written down yet because it's still dependent on the choices you will make in life. We look at both of those attempts to reconcile these two propositions and we reject both of them. We don't like either of those. We don't like either of those because first of all, the Bible teaches both that God is sovereign and that you have free will. The Bible teaches it clearly without attempting to reconcile it. God doesn't try to answer our questions. He doesn't clear it up and reconcile it and tie a nice bow on it. He just puts both out there. The Bible clearly teaches both that God is sovereign and that we have free will. So we hold both of these because the Bible teaches both of them and because we need both of them. We need both of these to be true. To live the life that God has designed for us. You got to have the first. You got to have a sovereign God if you are to have any rest in life. Rest, true, deep peace inside your soul is only possible if you have a sovereign God who holds your future in his hands. If God is not sovereign, then your future is uncertain and you are right to worry and live in fear. Rest is not possible without a sovereign God. You've got to have a sovereign God to know peace deep in your soul. But you also need the second proposition. You've got to have human free will. You've got to have free will to have responsibility. Responsibility as a human being is only possible if we have free will to make real decisions that carry real consequences in determining the future. If God has predetermined all things, then our choices are, are no more than acting out what God has already decided, then, then life is no more than a puppet show, and puppets aren't responsible for their actions. You cannot have responsibility in life unless you have free will. You've got to have both, the sovereignty of God and free will. You've got to have both of them. I can't explain how they're both true. I can't do it. It's a mystery to me. It's always been a mystery to me. It probably always will be. Now, I don't think it's a mystery to God. God has an infinite mind. He sees in multi-dimensions. He sees and knows all things. These two make perfect sense to God. He sees how they fit together just right. But I'm limited. I'm finite. So it will always be a mystery to me. And God is calling me to embrace that mystery, to, to accept that mystery, and hold both of these seeming contradictions in my hands. That God is sovereign and we have free will. I must hold on to both of them. Because I need both of them and because the Bible clearly teaches both of them. And that's what we'll see in our passage this morning. We're going to look in the book of Genesis at a story, two stories actually, about uh, two new characters who we're introduced to this morning, Esau and Jacob, twin brothers. Esau is is older by a minute. Esau and Jacob. We're going to look at their lives to see that in God determining the destiny of, of Jacob and Esau, you will see both God's sovereignty at work and their free will at work. 
For Jacob and Esau, their destiny, their future is determined by both God's sovereignty and their free will. So let me show you that. We're going to start with the sovereignty of God in the lives of Jacob and Esau. Their destiny was determined by God's sovereign choice. Look with me, chapter 25. Let's start in verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Right at the beginning of this story, we learn something about God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over childbirth. We learn that Rebekah is barren, just like Sarah before her, just like Rachel after her. Rebekah is unable to conceive children naturally. Uh, we find out later in the account that, that Isaac and Rebekah get married when Isaac is 40. They don't have children until he's 60. So 20 years of infertility go by, not by their choice. They wanted to have children, but they couldn't. They weren't able to have children until Isaac prays to God and God reaches down and miraculously enables Rebekah to conceive. And what you see in that actually throughout the whole book of Genesis, throughout the whole Bible, God is sovereign over childbirth. That's a good reminder for a moment. We live in a day and age where it's easy to believe that we, with our technological and medical advances, have wrested from God control over childbirth through birth control, through infertility treatments. We feel like we control whether we have children. Ultimately, that's not true. Ultimately, that's not true. No matter what birth control you practice, God can always slip one by and give you a baby. There's a lot of parents in this room that know that firsthand. Birth control, it's not perfect. No matter what infertility treatment you practice, God still controls life. God is still the one who grants children. When Julie and I went through infertility ourselves, we saw that firsthand. You try your best, but ultimately all you can do is pray. God alone holds childbirth in his hands. So God is sovereign over childbirth. Isaac prays, God answers, enables Rebecca to conceive. She becomes pregnant, but this pregnancy does not go well for her. It's very painful. Look at verse 22. But the children, so she's pregnant with twins, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? She went to the Lord to inquire. She is pregnant with twins, and these twins are struggling in her. The Hebrew there is actually a really violent term. They are crushing each other. They are fighting each other. They're at war. Now, when Julie carried our twins, Luke and Gracie, it was very uncomfortable, like all pregnancies are. This is more than just discomfort. These children are doing more than just jostling for space. They are actually trying to fight and kill one another. Why is that? Rebecca is in incredible pain. She screams out to the Lord, God, why is this happening? Would it have been better for me never to have gotten pregnant? So she goes to the Lord for an answer. And God gives her one. Look with me, next part of the passage, verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. First thing God does is give an explanation. Rebecca, why is there a war going on in your womb? Let me tell you. Because these two babies, they're two boys, that are going to give rise to two nations. Jacob will give rise to the nation of Israel. Esau will give rise to the nation of Edom. And they will be at war for the next thousand years. So what's going on in your belly? It's foreshadowing. It's prophecy. 
This is what is going to happen between the nations that come from these two boys. That's pretty bad news. <laughs> For Rebecca, it's pretty sad. So first God explains what's going on. And then having explained what's going on, God makes his sovereign choice. God makes his choice. He tells Rebecca, I've chosen one of these brothers to win this battle. One will be stronger. One will subjugate the other. And it's not the one you expect. It's the younger one. The younger one will be stronger than the older one. And as we look at God making his choice, we learn that just as God is sovereign in childbirth, so he is sovereign in election. God gets to choose whoever he wants to receive his blessings. God gets to choose one person rather than another person to receive his grace, his blessings, his promises. God's free. He can choose anyone he wants. When we look at God's choice of Jacob, first we learn God's sovereign election is not subject to our customs or expectations. According to the ancient world, which brother should have been stronger than the other, received the blessing rather than the other one? The older one. Esau. In the ancient world, they practiced primogenitor, the rule of the firstborn son. Firstborn son got double the inheritance of any other child. Plus, when the father died, he got control of the family. He was in charge of everyone else. That's how the ancient world practiced. That was their laws. That was their customs. But what God says is, I don't care about your customs. And I don't care about what you expect. I get to choose whoever I want. And I'm going to choose the one you didn't expect. God chooses Jacob rather than Esau, the younger rather than the older. That's actually what God does throughout the Bible. In the exercise of his sovereignty, when he elects people, he likes to choose the person we do not expect. So God chose David to be the king. Even though of all his brothers, David was the youngest and the most forgettable, his dad didn't even remember to invite him to the meeting with God's prophet. Totally forgettable kid. And yet that's who God picks. God picked Peter to be the head of the apostles. What do we know about Peter? Well, he's brash, he's rude, he's relatively uneducated, he's a middle-class fisherman. That's who God selected to run the church rather than all these religious leaders who were available that day. God chooses those we don't expect because God is free to do as he wishes. He is not subject to our customs or expectations. He chooses as he pleases. So his election is not subject to our customs or expectations, nor is it based on our merit. God chose Jacob not because Jacob was worthy of his choice. Jacob didn't earn it, not through past obedience, not through future obedience. Jacob was not worthy of God's selection. We'll we'll see that as we read the stories, but actually we get it told to us explicitly in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about Jacob and Esau and gives us some commentary on their lives. And here's what Paul tells us. Romans 9, starting in verse 10. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Not because of works, not because of merit, not because anything Jacob had done or ever would do, he was chosen. God continues, Romans 9, verse 15. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God chooses as he sees fit. He does not choose those who are worthy. Jacob was not worthy. As we study the account of Genesis, we'll actually see neither Jacob or Esau were worthy to be chosen by God. 
They're both pretty horrible kids. Jacob, he's deceptive, he's selfish, he's greedy, he manipulates, he does whatever it takes to get what he wants. Esau, he's just a fool. He's a man's man who is violent and brash and immoral and makes stupid decisions. Neither boy was worthy of God's choice. That's always how election works. No one is ever elected who's worthy because none of us will ever be worthy. If God only chose people who are worthy or would at some point in the future be worthy, how many people would he have chosen in the history of the human race? One guy, Jesus, that's it. He's the only one who's worthy of election. None of the rest of us are. Paul makes that point explicit in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. None of us, no human being who's ever lived with the exception of Jesus has ever been worthy of God's choice, of God's election. That's actually helpful when we think about a theological view out there. Some Calvinists hold, it's called double predestination, double election. They believe that God elects some people for heaven and some people for hell. No, God doesn't have to elect anyone for hell. That's what we all freely choose. We look at God and say, no, I don't want that. I don't want you. I prefer my sin. And so we run from God. That is hell. God doesn't have to elect anyone from hell. That's what we all freely choose. None of us would choose God. None of us are worthy of his choice. And that reality, that fact, helps you to answer the most common objection you will hear when someone, for the first time, hears about God electing people. Someone hears that there is a God who elects some people for salvation rather than other people, not based on merit, not based on faith, but based on just simply his own free will. What do they always say? That's not fair. That is not fair. Election is not fair. What do you do with that? How do you respond to that? Well, here's what I say. You're right. You are absolutely right. Election is not fair. More than that, God is not fair. And that's really, really good news. Really good news because what does fair mean? Fair means that you give everyone exactly what they deserve. So if God was fair, what would happen to the human race? Every single human being who's ever lived, with the exception of one man, Jesus Christ, would spend eternity in hell. That is fair. God is not fair. God is something better. He is gracious. And gracious is infinitely better than fair. Gracious is what you want in God. You don't want a fair God. You want a gracious God who in mercy, in grace, chooses certain people who are not worthy and blesses them with salvation. That's the God you want, a gracious God. A God who in mercy chooses the unworthy for eternal life. That's the God we have. That's how election works. God chooses the unworthy to enjoy eternal life. That's what God has done for you. Ephesians chapter one, Paul says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God chose you before time began. God looked into the future and saw you. He saw everything about you. He knew you. He knew your name. He knew you as an individual and he chose you particularly you by name, to receive adoption, 
to be made his child through faith in Jesus Christ. He chose you for eternal life, not because you deserve it. You don't, neither do I. We never will. He chose us in love, freely, because he wanted to make us his children. That's grace. Our destiny is determined by the sovereign choice God made in eternity past to love us by name. That's why our future is what it is. That's why you will spend eternity in heaven. That's why you have eternal life. Because God chose you by name before time began to become his child. But that's only half the story. That's only half the story. Our destiny is determined by God's sovereign choice, but that's only half of it. Because the Bible is clear, our destiny is not just shaped by God's sovereign choice, it is also shaped by our free will. The free choices that we make are real choices that carry real consequences and determining our destiny. Now, a lot of people trip up over this idea of, of free will. They trip over it because they have misdefined the word sovereignty. What does sovereignty mean? What does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? A lot of people assume that sovereignty means God makes all decisions. God decides all things in eternity past. He decides all decisions and all outcomes. That's actually not what sovereignty means in the Bible. You say that the biblical word sovereignty does not mean to make all decisions. It means something a little bit different. It means authority and power to make all decisions. Seems like a small change in wording, but it's really, really significant. Your God has the authority and the power to make all decisions that will ever be made. What that means is that God could have created a universe where he calls all the shots all the times, but he didn't. That's not the universe he wanted to make. Instead, he made this universe where he shares that sovereign authority. He shares his power and his authority to make decisions with his human creatures. That's why he made you in his image. In his image, what does that mean? It means that you, rather than anything else on earth, have the ability to make real, free, moral decisions that shape the future. You get to make decisions like God makes decisions. Not because God had to give you that authority, but because he chose in love to endow you with free will. So the sovereignty of God and free will, they are not in conflict with one another. God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he chose to express his sovereignty by delegating authority to make decisions to us. We have real free will to make decisions, and we're held responsible for the decisions we make. Our decisions shape our destiny. You see that clearly in the lives of Jacob and Esau. Let's look at two stories in their lives, two events, and we'll see how their choices shaped their future. First story is the rest of chapter 25. Esau will choose to sell his birthright to Jacob. Look with me starting in verse 24. He says, When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding onto Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom, meaning red. 
But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Not a very good story. It's pretty sad. (laughs) Both brothers look pretty bad in this story. Jacob, he looks manipulative. Esau, he looks like an idiot. He sells his birthright. That's the most valuable thing you had as a firstborn son in the ancient world. He sells it for a bowl of soup. So both brothers look bad, but Esau looks worse. And you can tell because did you notice Esau is the only one who is condemned in the account right at the end of chapter 25. Esau despised his birthright. Esau's condemned. Jacob is not. Why is Jacob not condemned? Well, Jacob was a jerk, but at least he was a jerk who valued the promises of God. Jacob believed that God's promises were so valuable that he would do anything, even manipulate, to get them. Now, the Bible nowhere commends Jacob's actions, but it does commend his faith. It commends him because he chose to value what God values. It condemns Esau because he didn't choose to value what God values. And the choices that these two brothers made, free choices, they were not coerced, they freely decided whether to value God's promises or not, their free choices had major ramifications. Because of their free choices, they are now halfway to fulfilling what God promised back when God was talking to Rebekah. Now Jacob the younger has the birthright of the older son. In the ancient world, if you were to inherit your father's property and become head of your family, you had to have the birthright and you had to have the blessing of your father. Jacob now has half of it. He has the birthright, but he doesn't have the blessing because Isaac doesn't like him. Isaac likes Esau. Both parents play favorites. It's a pretty ugly family. Isaac likes Esau because he likes the taste of the game that Esau hunts. Rebecca likes Jacob because Jacob likes to stay at home. So they both pick their favorites. Isaac wants to bless Esau. Rebecca wants Jacob blessed and said, Jacob has a birthright. How will he get the blessing? That's the next story. Turn to chapter 27. Chapter 27. Let's see how the free choices of these characters shape their destiny. It's a story of how Jacob chose to steal the blessing from Esau. Look with me starting in, verse, in chapter 27, verse 1. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, my son. And he said to him, here I am. Isaac said, behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. Okay, now Isaac knew what God had said back in Genesis 25. Isaac knew who had God chosen. Jacob. Isaac didn't care. Isaac chose Esau. He wanted his favorite blessed rather than the one that God had selected. And so he crafts a plan. Esau will go hunt game and and Isaac will bless uh, Esau. So so Isaac crafts a plan, but but his wife, Rebecca, is listening. And and she crafts a little different plan. Look with me starting in verse 5. Rebecca was listening while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. And then she unfolds a plan. It's quite crafty. She's going to cook a meal really fast. 
with, with flocks that are there, goats that are there. She's going to cook a meal that, that Isaac will love, but, but she has a problem. Isaac is pretty much blind. He won't be able to see that it's Jacob rather than Esau, but he'll be able to smell that there's a difference and, and feel that there's a difference because Esau smells like wild game. He smells like a hunter and he's really hairy. Jacob is not. So what she does is she dresses Jacob in the clothes of Esau, so he smells like him, and then she covers like his hands and his neck in goat skin, so he feels really hairy. So it's a pretty deceptive plan. It actually works really well. She crafts this deceptive plan to trick her husband, and it works. Isaac is at first a little suspicious because Jacob has a much higher voice than Esau, but, but he smells the clothing, and he eats the food. He drinks some wine. He feels Jacob's rough neck, that goat skin, and he gives in to the lie. He is deceived by Rebekah's plan, and look what happens in verse 27. So he came close and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he, that is Isaac, blessed him, that is Jacob, and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. Who does Isaac end up blessing? Jacob. Despite all his attempts otherwise to to confound the plan of God and bless his favorite son, Isaac ends up blessing Jacob just as God had promised. It's amazing to see what happens here. Isaac ends up doing exactly by his own free choice what God had promised. Now let's stop for a second and ask ourselves, why did Jacob end up with the birthright and the blessing? Was it because God chose him or was it because he freely decided to deceive his dad and manipulate his brother? Both. It's both. God's sovereignty and Jacob's free will working together to accomplish all that God had promised. What that shows us, I love this. Think about for a moment, in these two stories, who's the hero? It's not Isaac. It's not Rebecca. They're pretty awful parents. Just to be honest, pretty awful parents. It's clearly not Esau. He's a fool. And it's not Jacob either. He's a deceiver and a trickster and a liar. No, no human beings. They're all sinners. They're all awful. Who's the hero? It's God. It's God who has enough wisdom and enough power to work through the free choices of his people to bring about the fulfillment of his sovereign promises. I love what you learn about God in this passage. God is big enough that he can work through infinite, free, uncoerced decisions of human beings to bring about the perfect will that he planned before time began. Human free will and divine sovereignty working together perfectly to accomplish all that God desires. So in Jacob and Esau, we see that God is sovereign and we have free will. Both are true. I can't explain to you how they're both true. It's a mystery to me. But I live in that mystery and I hold both of them. I hold both of them because the Bible clearly teaches both of them and because I need both of them. And let's get back to that. Let's talk about what this matters to us, how this affects our lives. Practically speaking, what does it matter that God is sovereign and we have free will? Let's take both of those uh, actually in reverse order. Let's start with our free will. Why does it matter that we have free will? Because free will is how we find responsibility said that earlier. You are only responsible if you have free will. If God has determined everything for your life and your choices really don't matter at all, then you don't really have responsibility for your life. But that's not the world that God has made. 
God has created you with the ability to make free, uncoerced, real decisions that have real consequences in shaping your destiny. And as a result of that, as a consequence of that, you are expected to take responsibility for your life. You must take responsibility. You cannot hide behind the sovereignty of God. This is not a shield to you to protect you from taking responsibility for your life. No, God is sovereign, but you are still responsible. First, you're responsible to believe. I've been putting a verse up week after week. John 3, 16. I'm not going to put it up this week. Let's see if we know it by now. Okay, so John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you notice it didn't say so that whoever is elect shall not perish? No, what did it say? So that whoever believes, believes. How do you find eternal life? Through choosing to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You must believe. That's what shapes your future. That's what brings you eternal life. That choice to believe. We are responsible to believe. And so with that in mind, I just ask you, has there been a point in your life, a moment in your life where you have chosen to believe the good news of John 3, 16, that God in love sent his son? to die for your sins and rise from the dead to give you eternal life as a free gift. Have you chosen to believe that good news? If there's something holding you back, if it's an intellectual objection, if it's something in your past, if you just can't believe it could be that free and you're still trying to work for it, let me encourage you and urge you, please keep pressing towards faith. Come talk to me. Come talk to someone here, a pastor or a leader here at the church. We would love to sit down with you, give you more evidence, pray for you, help you to think things through because at some point in life, you must choose to believe. That's how you find eternal life. For those of us who have chosen to believe, what do we do with this application with our free will? Well, it challenges us to take responsibility to obey. We are responsible to obey God. Our choices, whether to obey or disobey, have real consequences in shaping our destiny and the destinies of our family, of our children. It's going to be a little bit sad in the coming weeks. A little bit sad that in the coming weeks we're going to see that the sinful choices that this family makes, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, are going to trickle down to their kids, their grandkids, for generations, their sinful choices will bring pain to their descendants. That's a good reminder to me as a father. Me as a father, my kids, Luke and Gracie, four years old now, I take great comfort in knowing that God holds Luke and Gracie in his hands. Their future is in his hands, but then I stop and I remind myself the mystery. Yes, their future is in his hands, but I, as their dad, am responsible to shape a good future for them through choosing to obey day after day. My choices as their dad really do have an effect in determining the future my children will enjoy. What incredible responsibility that places upon me. I am responsible. And so on a regular basis, I don't know if this will help you, but on a regular basis, what I'll do is just stop myself in the middle of the day and remind myself, Blake, I am responsible for my life. I am responsible to believe, I am responsible to obey, and I have no excuse for doing otherwise. No excuse at all. No excuse for not believing or not obeying. I am responsible for my choices. I'll just remind myself of that. 
Because my future and the future of my family, the future of my children, the future of my grandchildren is in some very real sense in my hands too. My choices affect me and them because God has endowed us with free will. So pretty heavy consequences that come from the truth of free will. Now let's talk about the other truth. The men, if you want to head back to prepare communion, let's talk about how we apply the sovereignty of God. What do we do with that, practically speaking, in our lives? What does it mean for us that God is sovereign over our future? Well, as we said earlier, God's sovereignty is the only way we find rest in life. Only way you can know peace and freedom from anxiety in your soul is to know that your God is sovereign. You can rest, you can be at peace because you have a sovereign God. Because he is sovereign, your salvation is absolutely secure. Here's a fun thing to think about. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Did you know that that the moment that you believed in Jesus, you proved something? Proved something. The moment you chose to believe the good news of Jesus Christ, what did you prove? You proved you've always been of the elect. You proved your election after the fact by faith. The moment you believed, you proved that God chose you in eternity past because no one chooses Jesus apart from God's election in eternity past. So the moment you believed, you proved you were of the elect. And if you are of the elect, what does that mean? Well, that means that God chose you by name in eternity past, looking forward and seeing all the good stuff you would ever do and all the bad stuff. Even the bad stuff you don't know about yet, God already does. He's already seen it. He saw all of it and he still chose you. And so when you screw up, when you really blow it, guess what? That doesn't surprise God. And it doesn't change his opinion of you because he already knew it all. God already knew that you would be unworthy. He knew the same thing about me and yet he chose us anyways. And so because of that, there is nothing that you or I could ever do that would change the decision God made in eternity past. Our salvation is absolutely secure. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 38 to 39. He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The last item on the list is the most important. That underlined item, any other created thing, that's you. That's me, we're created things. What Paul is saying is that, yes, we have free will, but it is not within our range of options as human creatures to separate ourselves from the saving love of God. I am free, but I'm only free to to choose between options that are available to me as a human being. I cannot choose to go fly like a bird. I cannot choose to go back in time. I cannot choose to become invisible. None of those are available to me. Neither is separate myself from God. Neither is lose my salvation. Neither is give God back my salvation. No, God says, I don't care. I'm not, getting the, I'm not taking that back. That's not an option available to us. Our salvation is absolutely secure in the sovereignty of God. He chose you in the past so that you will be glorified in the future. And there is no way that that choice can be overcome. God will do whatever it takes to ensure that you spend eternity with him as his beloved child. He chose you in eternity past for eternal life, and he made eternal life possible for you 2,000 years ago. So God chose you in eternity past, but he made his choice possible or effective 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to earth. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning in communion. 
Jesus came to earth, and it's interesting for a second. Just let yourself think about the parallels between Jesus and Jacob. Jesus and Jacob, particularly Jacob in chapter 27. Both Jesus and Jacob dressed up like other men. Jacob dressed up like his brother Esau, put on the clothing, the goat skin, all that. Jesus dressed up like you and me. He's the son of God, didn't have a body. He took on human flesh, limited human flesh like ours. So both Jesus and Jacob dressed up like other men, but they did it for opposite reasons. Jacob dressed up like Esau to steal a blessing. Jesus dressed up like you to give you a blessing. He dressed up like us to take the curse we deserved and earn the righteousness we could not earn so that we could have eternal life. That's what we celebrate in communion, that Jesus, out of love, he didn't have to do it. He freely chose to do it. He is sovereign. He could have said no, but he said yes. He said yes and disguised himself to look like us, took on limited, weak human flesh, and then went to the cross in our place to absorb the curse that our sins deserved and offer us the righteousness that his life had earned. As the men come forward, we're going to give you a couple minutes as the elements pass to go before the Lord and just say thank you. Thank you, God. You chose me in eternity past, but, but you did not win my salvation until your son willingly came and took my place. He dressed up like me. He took my sins upon himself and died in my place so I could have eternal life. Go before the Lord and spend this time just giving thanks for the gift of his son. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Lord, we're not worthy of your love. If eternal life was something that we had to earn, none of us would have it. Lord, we're so sinful, we're so weak. We're so rebellious by nature. We would run from you, Lord. So thank you, Lord, that in eternity past, you chose us individually by name, not not because we deserved it, but because you just wanted to show us love. And thank you that 2,000 years ago, you sent your son to, to make your choice possible, to make it possible for you, the righteous, holy creator, to save sinners like us. Thank you that Jesus gave his body to be broken on the cross. He shed his blood to be spilled as payment for our sins. Thank you that he lived a perfect life that earned righteousness for us. Thank you that you raised him from the dead, defeating sin and Satan and death. Thank you that you have applied his victory to our lives, not through our works, not through our merit, but just through your gracious love. Father, all of us right now, we go before you and we pray for any person here this morning, Lord, who has not yet received the free gift of eternal life, anyone here who's, who's still trying to earn your love or still trying to, to work their way back to you, 
We pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see your love is not something to earn. It's a free gift. Eternal life has already been earned for them by Jesus Christ. And he offers it for free to all who will simply say yes. We pray, Father, that this would be the morning of their salvation. For those of us who have believed, Lord, we thank you that you chose us in eternity past. We thank you that in choosing us, you have also endowed us with the responsibility and opportunity to make decisions, Lord. And so we pray that the choices we make each and every day, choices to believe, choices to obey, that they would honor you. Give us strength to live the lives you have called us to live. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased in us. All for the glory and renown of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Now, if you'll stand and close in worship with us.